Welcome to Risk Roundup. Across nations, its government, industries, organizations, and academia, in short referred to as NGIOA, there is an intense effort going on to manage the security risk brought on due to cyberspace, in cyberspace, geospace, and space, in short referred to as CGS. Significant investment is pouring into developing technology that can secure cyberspace. While high-tech efforts in technology development and deployment are ongoing, and in spite of all the advances in cybersecurity technology, most entities across NGIOA are still faced with complex security risks that cannot be reduced or eliminated. As the cyberspace shifts the security landscape rapidly, the traditional security parameters that technology leaders relied upon are becoming outdated, fragmented, and ineffective due to the complex interdependencies cyberspace brings to NGIOA in geospace and space. These complex interdependencies raise critical security risks that vary by enterprise, by industry, by leadership, by approach, and much more. So what are these security risks that go beyond technology? How does it impact you and your entity? To discuss this, I'm delighted to welcome David Moon. David is the Chief Executive Officer at Tripath Media. Welcome, David. We are delighted to have you on Risk Roundup. Thank you, Jayashree. It's a pleasure to be here and speak to this very important topic today. Great, wonderful, David. Uh, so often the questions, David, that any entity faces after a security breach in CGS are very complex and requires very well thought, well planned and structured approach. What are the questions that entities across NGIOA commonly face after a cybersecurity breach? Well, Jayashree, it's very common for a concerted effort to be ramped up in terms of determining all of the basic questions around who initiated this attack, where was the source of the threat. Uh, we, of course, want to understand uh, what type of data may have been compromised and what the purpose or objective of the threat may have been in the first place. Uh, as you know, however, that uh, you know, there's a very common statistic that these threats may have been lingering for an extended period of time. We recently worked with a uh, very large cybersecurity vendor who uh, related to us the statistic that across their thousands of customers, the very common and, and if not average sort of time frame between when a threat was present in their system and when it was discovered was somewhere around five months. And of course, this is a, a very important uh, dimension of things because during that five month period, uh, if that indeed is the average, uh, then a great deal of data could be compromised. And uh, that creates a very elongated period of time that we need to examine from a forensic standpoint and from a data analysis standpoint. Uh, we need obviously to embark on a triage effort. Uh, this is usually part of the incident response. Uh, to close the vulnerabilities and gaps that have been identified. However, at the moment be we become aware of a breach, uh, we don't have a full understanding in almost every one of these cases. We lack a full understanding of what happened, how it was perpetrated, and what the impacts really were. So very commonly, and this leads us to the communication space that we focus on at TriPath Media, very commonly we need to uh, move quickly to notify the regulators and soon after that the public will become aware uh, and we need to be proactive in that rather than just allowing information to leak out around the edges as it were. Uh, given that public profile that's now going to develop from a cyber security incident response, uh, we need to really get a handle on uh, how to communicate the information as additional knowledge unfolds about the incident. And in many cases, this can take days, if not weeks, for a complete picture to take shape. 
Yes, no, that is very true. And David, you made a very important point that at this moment, we do not have understanding about when the hackers get into the system. And when we come to know that, you know, we were hacked, the entities have no idea for how long they, their system have been compromised. There are no tools available right now or no technology that would let them know instantly that, you know, you are under attack. So those that creates very complex challenges. So I'm glad you brought that point up because there, there is so much that revolves around the duration of the cybersecurity threat that has happened during the time the hackers were in the system and what damage has been done. So there are a lot of complex variables and challenges uh, rising because of that. Now, when we look at most organization security plans today, human factor seems to be a very heavily under-addressed area. The ability to organize security efforts around the human factor is very essential in nation's efforts to address the integrated security risk facing NGIA in CGS. Do you see any effort in this area going on, you know, in the industry based on your involvement and observation? Well, it's very common for us, even to this day in 2016, to attempt to view all of this as a technology problem. And of course, we know today that uh, all of the sophistication and the technologies available to us cannot possibly drive these risks to zero. Uh, so, for example, uh, we just recently, about a number of weeks ago, had the annual RSA conference, uh, 2016. This conference is growing every year. It's held in San Francisco. And, you know, we, we had a great deal of very, very specific solutions represented on the floor of the conference. If we really bundled all of those together and we had an aggressive effort on the part of an enterprise to implement the majority of them, uh, we would have a very effective framework for uh, prevention and detection in place. However, the conventional wisdom we have is that that may drive our risk down to something like a 20% level. Uh, that's still very substantial. And so from there, we need to address the human factors, uh, the social engineering factors, and the uh, really behavioral and training sort of aspects, and particularly important around that, because we cannot drive this risk to zero, is how we communicate about an incident, about a cybersecurity event when it happens. Now, traditionally, our communication was, was bounded by a defensive approach related to perhaps inputs from legal counsel and compliance and other sources saying, you know, we need to not speak to this and not speak to that. And of course, we know that the media is much more sophisticated than that, that they will find information, uh, even if we're out to uh, create a vacuum of information. Uh, they will fill that vacuum with something, and it probably won't be something that puts the enterprise in a very favorable light. Now, you made a really interesting point, David, that at the RSA conference, you saw many solutions, bits and pieces, that if they all were, you know, combined together, there would be a significant, you know, reduction in the cybersecurity threats we are facing, and we would have a proper uh, framework. But I think that is where we see the challenge that everyone is working in silo and there is still not a collective integrated effort by which we can, you know, come up with the solutions. I think there is enough brain power across nations to be able to figure out, you know, effective solutions to all these complex challenges that we face, but we still work as if we are in an isolation age and, you know, we are all just looking out for ourselves and that's the big challenge so when we look at the importance of human factor in managing the security risk facing ngio in cgs how can the integrated security risk cybersecurity bridge or crisis be planned effectively around the human factor and that i would emphasize the word integrated because Right now, there is nothing, you know, where we can, you know, identify, evaluate or manage integrated security risk collectively. We just don't have that approach or the framework. 
Well, that's very true, Jayshree. You know that, uh, you know, one of the things we find is we, we often see in incident response situations, the organization attempting to cobble together a response on the fly. And increasingly regulators are requiring us to have an incident response plan that has been not only put in place and is consistent with security policy and strategy, but also one that has been tested through drills, through tabletop exercises, uh, through other mechanisms, including full-scale exercises. So we need to really, in effect, uh, buy our health, our, our flood insurance rather, uh, before we see the water start to rise. And you know this has to be in place. Uh, it almost, since we speak in terms of not when, not if a cybersecurity incident will happen, but when for most companies and entities that, you know, we really need to prepare for that eventuality at a National Guard sort of level of readiness, if you will, so that when the alarm sounds, when an incident is declared, uh, everyone knows their role and responsibility. They can effectively man their stations, if you will, and be prepared to execute all of the very detailed moving parts that have to happen in order to formulate an effective incident response, not just from a technological point of view, but from a process point of view and a communications point of view as well. Yes, absolutely. We need to be prepared. And talking about preparedness, in a digital global age, cybersecurity preparedness and resiliency needs to be the very top priority for each and every entity across each NGIOA. But when we look across nations, cybersecurity bridge or crisis usually comes as a surprise to most entities across NGIOA. And as a result, we often see control of events and communication message getting lost within and across enterprise boundaries. Now, when the impact of the cybersecurity breach goes beyond the enterprise boundaries, as you said, public scrutiny also intensifies. Media, you know, comes in. So, amidst that, how can any entity be ready, prepared, and be resilient when cyber preparedness itself has so many unknowns? Well, it seems that way on the surface quite often. And uh, in working with the uh, organizations and enterprises that we operate with, we find quite often that we need to go below the surface and another layer down. So we really start with the process of identifying and prioritizing the top risks that are realistic and likely for the organization. And once we get through those, we can identify through a very detailed taxonomy that we use as part of our methodology that we have certain threats that can cause those risks and certain vulnerabilities that will heighten our exposure to those risks. Once we get a handle on those, and there are very effective tools now to allow us to do that, we can start to develop very likely scenarios uh, which are much more likely than others to develop. Uh, once we have those, we can formulate a response around what we call a playbook and determine what kind of messaging and what types of information we will need to populate in each of these situations. Uh, so for example, recently a major hospital on the West Coast was subject to a ransomware attack and the entire hospital was virtually shut down uh, that is one specifically defined type of scenario uh, that we see as becoming more commonplace. The additional uh, scenario around uh, the uh, compromise of personally identifiable information or PII uh, is another very specific sort of scenario. So within each of these, we know that certain types of communication profiles are necessary. And uh, probably in part because of some of the reasons that you just outlined, uh, we find organizations are very ill-prepared to deal with these, even though they're very well-known uh, scenarios that play out quite commonly in cybersecurity incidents. Uh, what we find is, is most lacking 
are areas like, you know, how do we communicate effectively to the public the types of preparations that the organization has put in place and the way in which it has sought to safeguard information. Because quite often, uh, if you look at the communication, and I suppose we've all received these from banks or uh, insurance companies and retailers and others that we do business with, uh, quite often the communication focuses on here is the response, here's what we're doing, but it fails to emphasize the positive steps that the organization has taken to prepare for and prevent uh, these types of situations in the first place. So we, we have opportunities to really communicate uh, the effectiveness of what the company is doing, the fiduciary responsibility that they've taken around security, uh, and yet time and again, we, we fail to emphasize that. Yes, that is very true. Now, irrespective of any crisis, whether it happens in cyberspace, geospace or space, each and every entity, you know, is hit by very simple, you know, questions like, what should we do now? What should we say? How can any entity across NGI answer those questions? What, how, what and how should we do? What should we do now effectively? That question I think is at the heart of every crisis. What should we do now? So what, should, what would you tell them? That what is that first thing that they should be doing when a crisis hits? Well, the, the first thing, Jayshree, is, is really to step back and understand what is the information that we actually have and that we can verify and what is the information that we do not have that we are in the process of gathering. And of course, from a regulatory framework, quite often we are required, uh, depending on the industry and the type of regulations they're under, uh, we're often required to notify the regulators very early in this chain of events. Uh, and some of the state laws like Massachusetts have a very aggressive posture on this. Other states are less aggressive. Federal regulators are taking an increasingly uh, active role in saying, you really need to communicate and notify us as regulators as early as possible. Now, because that notification can trigger certain types of public disclosure as a result, we need to be prepared with our public communication uh, almost from the point at which the regulators are notified. And that is very early in the process, often 24 hours or so after we learn of an actual compromise. So in almost every case, we are still assembling our fact base in attempting to understand uh, who was the origin of this attack how was it actually executed? Uh, what was it that they were actually after? And what did they actually get and obtain? What were the objectives of this effort? Uh, and, and how long has it been going on? Uh, and and ha what have we done to actually close the loop on preventing any kind of further data loss associated with this? So these are all kind of the immediate questions. And as we're attempting to answer those, we also have to communicate. So what we need is a very sophisticated uh, set of communication that we know will go out in a series of messages as we learn more and yet not uh, kind of overly abuse the communications channel by providing individual play-by-play -play sort of updates on this, but only what's really meaningful uh, as it unfolds. And the pacing of that is very important in order to manage the process actively. Yes, that is very true. And we, I mean, there are complex challenges because each state 
has a different requirement and each i mean federal requirements are different so for any entity within any industry this again you know it is also industry based which industries have more requirements compliance requirements or uh, regulatory requirements for communicating this kind of cyber security breaches so it is good for every i i think it's advisable that each and every industry you know has some sort of guidelines that they know what they need to do and what kind of requirements they have so they can quickly you know work on that now irrespective of cyberspace geospace or space most executives or most decision makers across ngioa are trained to make decisions based on whatever information data and policy that they currently have now generally when a cybersecurity crisis or crisis you know in geospace happens security technology tools and procedures have failed security risk management uh, framework has failed information is either uh, you know very wrong incomplete or insufficient data is either available or not available or not reliable policies may or may not exist command and control is most likely lost brand and reputation are very intensely under attack when this kind of cybersecurity breach happens and then events are escalating beyond enterprises geographical boundaries so rapidly and security of an entity or enterprise it may or may not impact national security depending on you know what industry uh, they are part of uh, so how should entities move forward their necessary business operations in these complex scenarios because on one side they have to manage this you know huge cybersecurity breach and uh, make sure that you know they do everything to survive and not let their uh, brand reputation everything get destroyed beyond repair and on another side they have to continue their business operations as you know usual so it's two different things need to happen simultaneously and that's very very complex and very difficult for any decision makers any ngio to go through so what would you advise them you know how should they approach that well certainly and and that's obviously as we all know a very large question uh that we we all face and i had uh published a 2011 book entitled webify on how we manage risk against our strategic imperatives in this digitally connected world of the 21st century in which we operate with the degree of volatility that we face in markets, in geopolitical volatility, and certainly cybersecurity is a key risk factor that is emerging. Many executives feel themselves very uncomfortable in this space. And one of the things that we do know is that most of our boards, from a governance perspective, are very geared up and prepared to protect and provide oversight on 20th century assets, if you will plant, capital, equipment, maybe intellectual property, for instance. And yet uh, many boards now are struggling uh, as we encounter them and, and uh, engage in these conversations with corporate leaders. They're very much struggling to get their arms around data security, information security, uh, the, the entire cybersecurity landscape because in part, the expertise around these matters is not well represented on the board. Uh, we may have a uh, someone from a legal background, a financial or audit background, and maybe even an HR background. But very rarely do we see someone from a technology or cybersecurity background uh, serving on the boards unless it is a technology company. So based on that, uh, they're really having to turn to a variety of third parties to get their arms around this and to say, well, how would we really know when we have adequate protections in place in the organization around cybersecurity? What will be our test as a board, as the senior leadership providing the governance around all of this, uh, to be able to determine when we've done enough, when our efforts are satisfactory around this? Uh, that's a very, very important question. And within that, uh, we also have to understand that a lot of our efforts are uh, geared towards compliance. And that uh, we, we really know 
that compliance is a backward looking uh, effort. And so, you know, we're trying to comply with regulations uh, which have been developed over time and some of which may have uh, been put in place a number of years in the past and may have been uh, really kind of outstripped by the current cybersecurity threat landscape. So within that, we need to understand, we need to go beyond just mere compliance. And quite often in today's environment, going back to your question, we know that most organizations are challenged just to obtain the compliance level necessary to really address the situation. And another yeah. thing that we make very clear to clients when we work with them is that in many of these major breach situations, uh, the companies were actually in full compliance with the regulatory framework at the time that the breach happened. And we have documentation to support that in the form of the annual report, uh, which in most cases now uh, includes the appropriate signatures verifying from external auditors and from senior leadership that in fact the company is in compliance. And yet that is necessary, but not sufficient in today's cybersecurity environment. Yes, that's very true. And I, you, David, you made a really uh, good point that, you know, not many executives uh, that I talk to are able to understand. And that is about the strategic security. And uh, if, even if you look at the risk management frameworks that we have and uh, how we manage our risk, we focus on financial risk, compliance risk, legal risk, operational risk. But that's pretty much it. But now, if you look at the overall risk portfolio, that makes up only about 25 to 26 percent of the overall risk that any entity could face in any, you know, uh, across any nation or any single day. The rest, the total out of the 100 percent, about 75 percent, uh, you know, is the strategic security risk which is so critical in this digital global age, but no entity is able, you know, paying attention to that. And like you said, you know, the board, uh, the composition of the board itself is a challenge. They, there are not many people who understand the strategic security risk and uh, there is nobody to, uh, who is accountable for that. And uh, it, the entities are just not paying attention to the strategic security risk. And uh, that I think is at the heart of the problem. So when, there is a cybersecurity crisis or breach. Decisions have to be made very quickly with whatever information is available. Now, generally, the information is available to the decision makers is outdated, incorrect, or incomplete because they are still looking at things, you know, from 20th century perspective, and they just don't have a grasp about the assets in the digital global age. And now, in a digital global age, a cybersecurity crisis is not business as usual. While the cybersecurity crisis or breach itself can have a short or long duration depending on cybersecurity technology preparedness, its response, consequences, and impact can determine the viability of a business, industry, or a nation for years to come. Even if one wins or loses in a cybersecurity technology aspect of a breach or crisis, the communication public relation battle of the cybersecurity breach brings very complex challenge to the entity at stake that perhaps determines survival. And why is that so? Because you know people are paying so much attention to technology and so much investment is going on in technology. But yet when a crisis happens, when the you know breach happens, it is a communication or public relation, how that is effectively managed, that will determine if that entity will you know survive or not. So what are your thoughts? What can you tell our global viewers and listeners why that is so very important? Well, first of all, Jayshree, we know that in today's world, uh, now much more of our enterprise value is tied up in digital assets, uh, customer records, uh, intellectual property, and other areas in which, you know, it's, it's less about plant capital and equipment today than it is about our real digital assets, our intellectual property assets. And, and you know, the fact is, if we had a, say, a major financial institution, it has a certain uh, enterprise value today, a certain book value, if you want to go back to that as an auditable uh, number. 
Now, if we took out all of the information from that enterprise, what would then be its value? And of course, uh, starting tomorrow morning, we would no longer be able to report to customers on the status of their accounts or, or anything. And that would be a very, very different value. So, you know, we only need to look at these examples to understand what's really at risk if that data is compromised. So we need to then move to evaluation of risk. And for the kind of exposure that we have, we need to understand how very real in financial terms these risks are. Uh, and I think in addition to that, we need to uh, probably get much more of a knowledge base in front of senior management about the real risks out there in the real world and how those materialize. So just to go through a couple of examples, I was at a conference recently uh, with an internal auditors group uh, and we had perhaps uh, 200 people in the room. Uh, there was a survey question that was posed and uh, people were asked to raise their hands and they were asked how many people have experienced an attack where they have been notified by a third party entity, law enforcement, FBI, et cetera, that a server or a system within their network was actually being used to launch attacks on external parties. And somewhere around 80 of the 200 hands in the 200 people in the room raised their hand. Uh, so this is a real world effect today. Uh, that's an attack that doesn't compromise us, but it's a third party using one of our resources within our own system to launch attacks on others. And we need to think in terms of these kinds of things. We need to think in terms of advanced persistent threats, many of which include a social engineering element. Uh, we also had a situation recently where a client that has uh, very much uh, a, a very large intellectual property base that is, is core to the value of their business uh, had people that were starting to do more and more business in China. And one of their people who had uh, certain, let's say, drawings, plans, et cetera, as well as emails on their smartphone was asked in uh, customs upon entering the country, oh, uh, you know, can we have a look at your uh, smartphone? Uh, just wait right here. We'll have it back to you in about 20 minutes. And we know that uh, certain government entities in China and elsewhere uh, license the same forensic software that is used commonly to uh, extract information from smartphones, tablets, and other mobile devices. So that, you know, these are the kinds of threats that are happening all the time. And we need to be mindful of what's out there. Uh, the Internet of Things, Shadow IT, uh, any kind of uh, merger and acquisition activity we've had in the organization recently brings an entire new set of uh, systems and, and uh, technologies that we didn't have as part of our security envelope in the past. And we need to rapidly get them secured as well. And then third parties, trading partners and suppliers uh, who participate in our system in ever more integrated kinds of ways now also pose risks because we don't have direct control on their practices for that matter. And, you know, we, we need to understand about how to sew up all of these various endpoints as part of the attack surface that is open to the threats that are, are out there and, and very prevalent. Yes, yes. Now, that is very good analysis, David. Now, if you look at the entities across NGIA, there is a, you will see that there is a common failure to train employees for cybersecurity risk management, irrespective of on-site training or off-site training. Identify and monitor all cybersecurity threats and risk. Conduct cybersecurity breach exercises or you know, update cybersecurity crisis plans or develop a cybersecurity crisis communication plan. So it's an open secret, David, that failure of one entity or an organization impacts us all in a digital global age. 
we there are so many complex inter you know connectedness and interdependencies so how do we ensure that each entity across ngioa does what needs to be done to prepare for cybersecurity effectively because even if we manage our independent risk even if an entity entity manages its independent risk effectively if they don't address the interdependent risk then you know it uh, it doesn't matter whether they're managing their independent risk effectively or not because the inter, it's those interdependent uh, interconnected risk they are at the heart of the you know cybersecurity uh, cyber crisis that we are facing across nations so how do we prepare for you know those interconnected interdependent uh, cybersecurity risk effectively this is a very important area that is uh, really under address today and uh, we've been in contact with a uh, actually been encouraged by a global manufacturing firm uh, based here in the US uh, who has joint venture operations worldwide to actually work with them and develop cybersecurity incident response plans and standards for those plans and especially communication for each of their joint venture partners. Because if uh, one of them was compromised in a certain way and the communication was not handled properly or the incident response uh, was not handled properly, this would impinge on their operations and it would flow through the entire ecosystem that they represent. Uh, we I've also recently had some experience with a global accounting firm in uh, developing security standards for their uh, 120 member firms in uh, 120 countries and getting that out so that there can be a consistency around how client records are handled around the security preparations in place and including the ability to communicate because quite often Jayshree when we have uh, perhaps a franchise organization or someone who is multinational in structure in whatever fashion if something were to happen in a far-flung uh, country operation of theirs it really does impact the entire brand throughout and these are the issues the soft issues perhaps that again are not technology based around brand and trust public perception and these are the areas that can most erode enterprise value if we look at the impacts that have happened and in many of these cases uh, it is uh, averaging from the statistics that we see and primarily from Wall Street analysts who've studied this matter it's averaging about a 17 percent erosion in enterprise value uh, in the first year after a major breach has happened so these are real material effects that we need to step up to and get a proactive stance rather than simply a defensive stance in our response to these areas. Yes, no, that's a very good point. And since you talked about the incident response plan, let's talk about a scenario where an entity is hit with a cybersecurity breach or crisis, if you say. So it was just a minor breach, not a major breach. But now that entity realizes what is at stake, so they want to plan and be prepared. Where should that entity start? What kind of an internal and external preparedness plan they should put together? They really need to start in identifying the top risks and the ranking of those risks that they face as a business today. And a mechanism to really sort through those risks back to the kinds of threats that could materialize and start to coalesce those around a defined set of scenarios and likely outcomes uh, which we we know about today uh, and and then you know from those to say what kinds of stakeholders would be most affected in those types of incidents so we may end up with let's say five high priority types of incidents that are very likely to be the most commonplace in what would happen in a future scenario around those we'll have different stakeholders we may have trading partners we may have shareholders 
that are most at risk. In alternative scenarios, uh, it may be customers who have the greatest cause for concern around those, especially if we're talking about personally identifiable information being compromised. So within each of those, uh, we have a different set of communication uh, that we need to put forth and really kind of uh, portray the fact base accurately and to make sure that there is a proper categorization that the media channels can understand and the public can understand around what has actually happened. And, and if I might offer uh, sort of an example of this, Jayshree, is that you know we had a major retailer that had a uh, very significant breach uh, a couple of years ago. And, and what happened was they, they wanted to characterize with full disclosure everything that had happened. And there was virtually um, no distance between uh, their, their learning of the facts, if you will, and, and the disclosure of the facts uh, in the public domain. And so they began to list, well, there were 10,000 records compromised here, there were another 400,000 compromised here, et cetera. The media, of course, is writing all of this down. And after a while, it started to uh, seem like about half of the US population had had its credit card information compromised, courtesy of this particular retailer. Well, you know, it turned out that there was overlap, almost complete overlap between these various data sets that were being referenced. And so the, the actual problem was much more limited in scope than what had been inadvertently portrayed in the company's own communications. All of this was done with the very best of intentions. And yet this is the way that uh, things can become misperceived if we don't proactively go out and try to make sure that we're communication, communicating accurately and completely, but in a way that can be understood and really digested by the media process. That's very true. Now, that's a very important point that you made there, David. Now, we, with the advances in the digital tools like cameras and microphone, that are now you know part of pretty much you know all phones and smart devices digital global age has brought us a very different variable to the cybersecurity crisis and that is when any cybersecurity breach occurs there's always someone who is there with a smartphone to record audio and video of any communication happening between the decision maker and that could be uploaded whatever communication happened can be uploaded you know between the decision makers instantly now this brings very different kind of risk how can decision makers or enterprises prepare themselves for this kind of uh, uh, security risk well that's very true we we do have to have guidelines around that uh, within the enterprise when it's internal parties that are capturing that type of information, be it multimedia or otherwise, uh, we, we really have to limit that exposure. Uh, just as we would limit, uh, if we're doing a corporate tour, for example, and we've got third parties from the outside walking through headquarters, they may uh, happen to come by a, uh, someone working on a computer screen, and we, we simply don't want them to take a snapshot of that computer screen and uh, release, uh, for example, financial information or payroll information or something else that might be sensitive. So this is kind of a, a common thing that we need to have in place already uh, as a policy around security in order to limit that type of content. Uh, having said that, uh, when, when there is an incident, uh, we really need to have, uh, in almost all cases, a measure of attorney-client privilege in which the incident response activities themselves are conducted so that we don't have a minute granular scrutiny on the part of uh, shareholder groups or uh, outside uh, e even you know parties that may have an interest in obtaining that you know the play-by-play -play, uh, has to proceed in a fashion that is organized towards uh, eliminating the threat, 
identifying the parameters of the threat, the sources and the impacts of the threat. And that process should proceed unfettered uh, without minute scrutiny on the part of, of outside third parties. So this is why attorney-client privilege is, is very important. Yes, no, that's, that's a very good point, David, attorney-client privilege. Now, let's talk about industry guidelines. Now, when a cybersecurity breach or crisis occurs, one should identify what is known, what are the interdependencies, what is the response plan, what is the monitoring plan, what are the different metrics that needs to be looked at. So are there any industry guidelines or best practices or framework available for uh, organizations to follow if we talk about just the crisis communication uh, for the cybersecurity? Yes, there are, and they are very specific to cybersecurity. Uh, that's why you know we have uh, traditionally many practitioners in the crisis communications area, uh, and yet uh, very few of them are really operating today with uh, cybersecurity specialization or focus of the type that's really needed here. And one of the reasons uh, that's needed and, and so essential is because of the regulatory frameworks that are very, very detailed. For instance, in financial services, FFIEC, in healthcare, HIPAA, and high tech, and then in every type of retail operation, uh, PCI. So within all of those frameworks, uh, they all operate under a basic NIST set of categorizations, if you will. And we've uh, taken steps to develop a very detailed uh, set of interrelationships between those various regulatory frameworks so that we can identify uh, what is is really uh, happening on the the front of you know how we are uh, categorizing a particular threat or vulnerability and how it comes back to uh, the actual communication steps we need to take and within that, uh, we have used the uh, FEMA guidelines around cybersecurity incident response. We've been uh, coordinating uh, and, and sharing information with Gene Reserve at uh, George Washington University, who has helped FEMA in a lot of its media readiness around cybersecurity incident response and how to formulate tabletop exercises and preparedness steps for these kinds of efforts. It needs to be done in a way that is specifically targeting the cybersecurity dynamics uh, that we commonly see in these situations. Good, good point, David. Now, uh, let's talk about uh, closing gaps in uh, understanding uh, what is required beyond technology for cybersecurity uh, crisis. Now, closing gaps in cybersecurity goes way beyond security technology, as we have been talking uh, for uh, last in a few minutes. Now, to be able to manage the security crisis caused by a breach in cyberspace or geospace to any entity's proprietary information, we already talked that uh, it cannot be met by compliance or by regulations or by using security technology and software programs. This is largely an issue of understanding the initiative or business in the cyberspace, geospace, its interconnectedness, its interdependencies within, between, and across NGIOA, and to be prepared for the security vulnerabilities. However, if you see the focus, and we already talked about it, that it's still very much on compliance. If you look at the risk management frameworks, they also focus largely on compliance. So how would entities be prepared for cybersecurity risk when the frameworks they depend on focus is largely on compliance. I mean, even the communication plans that are part of this risk management framework, they're all, you know, based on the compliance. And I believe you have just started, your uh, organization has also started this initiative that is focused on compliance. So everyone is, you know, focusing on compliance. So how to actually prepare this, entities for cybersecurity risk when each and every framework, each and every initiative or each and every organization that you look at, they are looking at uh, cybersecurity bridge purely from compliance perspective. Well, we, we need to remind ourselves that the uh, compliance frameworks do provide 
a very important uh, set of detailed requirements. And even though they are, as you point out, necessary but not sufficient, uh, they are a very key motivator to getting in place some very effective measures around cybersecurity preparedness today. So, you know, that is a virtuous part of the cycle overall. Uh, and yet, you know, we do need to remind ourselves to do what we should do in protection of the enterprise beyond simply the compliance effort. Uh, and one good example of this is, in fact, in the communication space, where compliance really only requires us, in general terms, to have a cybersecurity incident response plan, or CSERP. Uh, it doesn't really tell us that that CSERP needs to be uh, geared towards proactive communication or just defensive communication, if you will. Uh, and yet, we know that if we take a proactive stance to our incident response communication, we are going to be able to avoid some of the many of the negative consequences of misinterpretation and miscommunication that, uh, that this area is fraught with. So here again, we just we still need to do ourselves a favor and make sure that as corporate leaders, we're doing the right things to keep the really safeguard the integrity of the enterprise and the public perception of the enterprise beyond what the simple compliance requires. Yes, yes, no, that is true. Now, cybersecurity breach can be very costly to any business or any reputation. Now, if you look at developing countries, they seem to be more vulnerable today, but they don't have much to lose when the security breach occurs. Compared to that, if you look at developed nations like United States, there are fewer security vulnerabilities, but there is so much to lose. When a cybersecurity breach or attack happens, it is undoubtedly the developed nations that will lose more in the end. And here, the humans will play the biggest role in such security breaches. Now, in spite of so much to be at stake, we see lack of education and awareness about the role of humans. And we continue to hear about major breaches happening you know, within our nation, across our nations, where humans have played a major role. So how is this human factor being addressed across nations? What is being done to prepare, to educate, to raise awareness about these human factor challenges that are coming? Well, you're right, Jayshree. It is a gap of awareness. And we have to educate. Uh, we have to, in every organization, have at minimum a, an onboarding briefing in information security so that basic standards and practices are in place across the entire organization. And this is in every possible role, because in today's enterprise, every functional uh, job role is handling information at one level or another and has access to information. So we have to make sure that we've got a baseline in place of proper treatment of that information. Uh, recently, I had the opportunity to uh, conduct an exercise on a uh, financial firm, large integrated financial firm, global financial firm, and uh, we uh, went through a social engineering experiment and a simulated phishing attack. Uh, this was geared towards, you know, sort of, there's been an irregularity with your credit card or your banking account, and please click on this. To resolve this irregularity and of course it takes them to a spoofing site in which they're asked to enter their login credentials etc now about 30 uh, percent of the most senior leadership of this particular financial services organization uh, actually clicked through and uh, took the bait of the phishing exercise so this shows us even in some of the most sophisticated situations, the uh, awareness gap that we have and how that needs to be filled. So we also need really recurring briefings to remind people. And what we really advocate is a, is a certification process where I have to have gone through this recurring briefing. 
Otherwise, I may be decertified for certain functions in my job uh, that involve information handling. And it needs to be taken very seriously like that. Yes. Just simply part of our digital world from now on going forward. Yes, yes. Now that is absolutely right. Now let's talk about the data, which is at the heart of uh, cybersecurity breaches. Now organizations have been spending billions of dollars on cybersecurity technology to find cyber intruders inside their own networks. And even in 2016, organizations are enterprises, corporations, governments. Everyone is going to spend, uh, you know billions of dollars to uh, on the cybersecurity technology. But in today's interconnected and outsourced world, an organization's sensitive data resides not just on their computers, but on hundreds, if not thousands of business partners' computers too. So data is at the center of cybersecurity bridges. And now most enterprises equate being compliant with being secure we already talked about this compliance challenges but these are very complex data security challenges that doesn't just stay within their organization's computers but it could be on third-party computers so how can com companies or enterprises effectively manage this third-party risk to their data and how do they prepare their communication plans because they need to have effective knowledge about how much data they have, where is the data stored, who uses it, how is it protected, on how many computers it is there, how are organizations preparing their data security and data communication plan, how do they determine who gets access to data, how is it stored, modified, managed, litigated or destroyed. There, when you have so many different partners, so many different com uh, facilities, so many different computers, that is, you know, storing the data, it becomes such a complex task to develop these kind of plans. So how do organizations do that? This is a very important question. And it's another one that is quite often overlooked in uh, senior management's assessment of their cybersecurity exposure. And it causes a uh, very significant set of risks uh, which also need to be incorporated in the overall communications plan uh, and the incident response. So let's let's look at an example. Uh, it's very common in uh, mortgage banking, for example. Uh, let's talk about residential mortgage banking. Uh, there is a certain uh, class of threats that is targeting uh, real estate brokers and others involved in that chain of process. Uh, which, of course, as in the uh, uh, question as you outlined it, is fraught with many different players. Uh, we have uh, an appraiser. We have uh, state and county and local governments involved in the uh, recording of deeds and so on. We have uh, uh, real estate brokers. Uh, we have sales agents. Uh, we have the mortgage bank itself. And then we have... Uh, all of the, um, you know, credit rating agencies and, and other reporting entities involved in this. Each of them kind of contributes their slice to what we might consider sort of that folio surrounding the purchase, which includes a lot of detailed financial information because of the way that people qualify for mortgages. Uh, so there's a certain category of threats that has emerged that targets particularly high-end real estate brokers. Um, many of these operations do not have very sophisticated technology. Uh, many of them have older technology uh, that has not been updated in recent years to account for the kind of threat landscape that is out there. And very few of them have a sophisticated uh, cybersecurity protection and detection mechanism in place so that the ability for uh, much of this information to leak out, uh, even about uh, high net worth individuals, is uh, it's very, very high. It's a very, very high risk. And uh, everyone in that cycle can be compromised. Uh, in fact, it can have adverse effects from a public perception standpoint on the mortgage bank, uh, can have adverse effects on uh, the brokers themselves, as well as the individuals involved who are targeted for this type of 
what really, in essence, is a cyber crime. Uh, and, and, you know, these are the kinds of things that we really need to have rethought in our society at large and in terms of our business practices so that the cybersecurity risks of today will ripple through these industries and they will have changes uh, and effects that will, will take place that, that we can't even imagine today. Um, it's very common for us to see how, you know, many small and medium-sized businesses or trading partners with, say, larger entities are struggling to get in place the proper cybersecurity preparedness today. And it probably will change the structure of certain industries because some of the smaller players may not have the uh, capital to step up to, or the sophistication to step up to the proper safeguards. And, and so this, this, this all has much more far-reaching effects than, than what we visualize today. That is very true, David. Now, it seems your organization, Tripath Media, is involved in helping enterprises across NGIA manage their crisis communication risk. Would you like to share some information about your initiative with our global viewers and listeners? Certainly, I appreciate that, Jayshree. Um, we view uh, this area of cybersecurity incident communications as a key gap in the risk profile of many organizations today. And the reason for that is we have tended to objectify, if you will, our approaches to cybersecurity. We think in terms of technology, we think in terms of process and procedures, uh, we tend not to think in terms of the preparedness that needs to be in place around communication and how we handle these incidents. So it's very common uh, for us, and it's accepted knowledge now, that it's not really a question of if a cybersecurity breach of major magnitude uh, will occur in any enterprise. It's a question of when. Uh, and in fact, I may already have the threat present within my system today uh, and simply not know about it. Uh, that's more common than we even believe. So, you know, what we have to do is create this preparedness around communications. And what we saw at Tripath Media is that clients would continually ask the question, what do I do if the media calls? What do I do if the media shows up wanting to do a story on us and I don't know how to respond because at that point uh, I am suffering the effects of this incident and all of the preventative measures that I put in place uh, really aren't a factor at this point anymore uh, and I need to be able to put myself in a reasonable light that is not inaccurate and is not going to be damaging to the brand and the organization and its stakeholders uh, in a way that many of these more recent incidents have, have turned out. And so, you know, what we really did was we started from the regulatory frameworks. Uh, we developed uh, this extensive set of relationships between threats, vulnerabilities, and the scenarios that unfold in specific risk situations. Uh, we then put that together with the structuring of tabletop exercises and certain other preparedness drills to really get the organization to be media ready. Within all of that, uh, we conduct this in a, in a framework that's regulatory friendly so that the regulators can recognize it and it's in their lens that they understand so that compliance is also enhanced. But fundamentally, it's really just as simple as taking a, an offensive or proactive stance to how the company conducts its affairs in the advent of cybersecurity incident, as opposed to a purely defensive stance. And we've seen this time and again. Uh, we do operate within the guidelines provided by outside counsel and uh, within the regulatory framework, as we mentioned. But within that, the company is under no obligation to fail 
to characterize its efforts in a positive light. Uh, we, it, all of these are very unfortunate incidents. Some of them have far-reaching consequences. And we need to be able to adequately do what we have done that's in place, the preparations that have been made, as well as the steps that are taking shape from here on out and, and really help preserve the value of the organization uh, that's been built over many, many years. Uh, and, and that's important. And so value of doing that is to preserve the brand and public perception which is really at the core of the inherent value of the enterprise itself. Yes, that is very true. And you made a good point that it's all about proactive preparedness. So I hope that entities across NGIO, you know, uh, focuses on this uh, very important area to be proactively, you know, uh, ready, prepared for the cybersecurity risk. David, thank you so much for uh, agreeing to come on Risk Roundup and uh, sharing your valuable insights. I'm sure our global viewers and listeners are going to benefit tremendously from what you had to say today. So thank you, David. Thank you, Jayshree. It's been a pleasure. Great. So now a cybersecurity breach or crisis has huge impact for not only the ent entities across industries, but also to the very security and survival of a nation. While each crisis brings both opportunity and risk, the opportunity risk balance depends on each and every decision maker's initial decisions, the crisis communications, monitoring of security breach events, and adjustments made to the security strategy and actions as events develop in cyberspace, geospace, and space. As many cybersecurity crises have a potential to be a national security crisis, it is not only the entity, its brand, reputation, or profitability that is at stake. Focusing on only technology can create a point of no return for each and every entity across NDIOA. Risk groups, cybersecurity risk research center, and Strategic Security Risk Research Center are created for this very purpose so that we can collectively identify, evaluate, and manage the risk-facing NGIOA in CGS. And we can have executives like David come on Risk Roundup and share their you know, uh, valuable insights on how we can go forward you know, in this very complex uh, uh, digital global age. So uh, we at Risk Group believe that risk management, security, and peace walk together hand in hand. Though security is related to management of threats and peace to the management of conflict, risk management is related to management of security vulnerabilities as well as management of conflict. And it is not possible to conceive any one of the three without the existence of the other two. All three concepts feed into each other. We believe that the security we build for ourselves is precarious and uncertain until it is secure for everyone across nations. Traditions become our security. So if we build a culture of managing risk effectively, it will lead us to security and security will lead us to peace. Let's manage the existing and emerging risk together. For more information on the risk roundups, to watch the risk roundup videos, or to hear to the risk roundup podcast, please go to riskgroupllc.com. Do not forget to subscribe and share. Until next time, I'm Jayashree Pandya, host of Risk Roundup, signing off. See you next time. Thank you.